Glad you guys are here because today is Luke chapter 19, the triumphal entry. And we're going to pick it up there in verse 37. Um, Luke chapter 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 37. If you remember, Jesus has just sent the disciples to go and get the donkey. He's going to ride on a colt into Jerusalem, fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now, you might ask yourself, why a donkey? Well, when Solomon was coming in as the king of Israel, he also rode on a donkey. It expressed humility because the king was to serve the people. So we're going to pick it up there in Luke chapter 19. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and prepare our hearts to hear the word of God. Lord, we are so thankful for this moment when you walked into Jerusalem as the king of kings. We are grieved that Israel would reject you, but thankful for your death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we study this portion of scripture tonight, would you fill our hearts and minds so that we can grow? In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 37, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now stop there for just a moment. If you remember, prior to this experience, Jesus has told his disciples one, two, three times that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, and they're going to crucify him. He is headed towards the cross. Now take a look, as he was now drawing near the Mount of Olives. Now this was me, guys, and I know I'm heading for a cross. I'm not drawing near to the Mount of Olives. I'm going to be drawing near to like Galilee. I'm going to be drawing near to like Rome. I'm not going to be heading towards my crucifixion, but Jesus made it very clear that he was going to set his face as a flint. Now, if you know anything about a flint, it is the little stone that would be used to circumcise Jewish boys when they were eight days old. It was a very sharp stone. It was a very pointed stone. And so when Jesus said earlier in the Gospels that he had set his face as a flint, you have to understand that Jesus is very sharply pointed towards the cross. And it's important for us to recognize that for just a minute. Because I know they're about to sing praises to him and I know he's the king of kings and the lord of lords and there's a real good feel good when someone walks up to me and says, hey, great message, Chet. Hey, great job, Chet. Hey, good job. When there's a praise that's given, there's a good feeling about it. But you need to know, Jesus knows what's in the heart of these people. Because the very people that are going to be shouting Hosanna are gonna be the very people that are gonna be shouting crucify him. And so here the Lord setting his face as a flint, though he's being praised, as pe uh, praised by people, you need to know that he's going to the cross because he's going to die for you and he's going to die for me. Because there was no way for any of us to get to heaven except someone lived a sinless life. And so Jesus setting his face as a flint, he did that for you and for me. Not for the praise, not for the accolade. Now, the Bible says here that the disciples, 
They began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Now, that's a very important phrase because the ones that are coming into Jerusalem with Jesus are those from Galilee. They had seen the great works of all that Jesus had done. Now, remember, there were three cities, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and um, Capernaum. And these three cities were rebuked by Jesus because of all of the mighty work that they had seen done in their villages, and yet they had not repented. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment and think about all the great things you've seen Jesus do in your life. Whether it's a physical healing, maybe a financial burden that was relieved. Maybe the Lord, he rescued you, redeemed you. Maybe you look at your family and you just rejoice that people are walking with the Lord. Maybe there's something that you can, that you look back and you go, wow, look what God has done in my life. God is so good. Well, these three cities, they chose not to change. Just imagine all that God has done for you and you choose not to change. He said, woe to Chorazin. He said, woe to Bethsaida. And he said, woe to Capernaum. You see, this did not repent. Now we have to evaluate with all that God has done on, for our lives. The very fact that we're even sitting here in this auditorium, is there something in my life as I look and I see all that God has done for me that I'm choosing not to change? that I'm going to choose to go the way of the world, that I'm going to choose to just hold on to this piece of, of my personality instead of surrender it at the foot of Jesus. Be careful that the same woe and rebuke and chastisement and discipline doesn't come to you. When we look and we see all that God has done, the only thing that we can do is praise him. Now, remember what Paul says. The way that we praise God is that we surrender our lives as a living sacrifice. And what Paul is saying is we no longer live for ourselves. We live for God. So the best praise that we can give him is not when we come into service and we hear a great song that Gannon sings and we lift our hands and they're just angled right where it should be angled in Orange County because this says in Orange County we're holy. And if you add just a little sway to it, then people really think, oh, they are just into the song and worshiping, right? No, 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 here's the deal. The way that we praise God is by offering our lives. So here the disciples who've seen all the great works, they're giving praise and they're shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Another uh, uh, gospel writer in Matthew, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. To save, to save, God has brought forth his son. This is a messianic proclamation. A messianic proplication. Now take a look what happens. Some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Let me explain what's happening. In Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you sitting on the foal of a donkey. Psalm chapter 1, 118 proclaims the messianic proclamation that they are blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the Pharisees are listening to the Galilean Jews and the Galilean Jews are proclaiming Jesus to be the Messiah. 
They're claiming Jesus to be the son of the living God. So the Pharisees come on the scene knowing Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, knowing Psalm 118, and they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, don't be so heavy on them. How many of us have gone to Jesus when someone has made us mad and said to Jesus, you need to deal with them? How many of us have been in that position? Think of the relationships that <laughs> I appreciate your honesty. Think of, the, think of the positions you've been in, the relationships you've been in, some of the struggles that you've had. How many of us have gone to Jesus and say, you need to deal with my spouse right now? Like, if they will change, if they will just, Andre's looking at me, I know she doesn't pray those kind of prayers, but uh, I felt conviction one way or the other. But here's the deal. How many of us in a relationship, we've done the very same thing that the Pharisees have done, and we know the person's heart, and we know it's evil, and Jesus, you need to go get them, and you need to deal with them. Well, you know what the Bible says? Judge not. Because we don't know what's in people's hearts. We don't know what's going on in their lives. We don't know the experience that they're walking through. And I'm sure that Jesus has listened to a few of my prayers of, you need to go get them. And the Lord responds and goes, no, we need to deal with your heart first. Because I've said for you not to judge. Why are you coming to me to go judge someone else? Leave that in my hands. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So you've got to think of your enemy right now. You've got to think of the person, maybe your neighbor or the person you work with. You've got to think of the person that it just gets under your skin. Are you like the Pharisees who go to Jesus and say, you need to deal with that person? Or are you like the Lord? And no matter the opposition, no matter the antagonism, you choose to love your enemy, to pray for, to bless, and to do good. Now take a look. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. And you know this actually happened. There was a moment when God was not being praised or worshiped, one moment in all of our history. And it was the death of Jesus Christ, the whole world darkened and shook. Jesus is prophetically letting the Pharisees know and when the Pharisees hurt, felt the shake of the ground and the darkness of the sky, I wonder, did they think of what Jesus told them? I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. I wonder in the state of California, I just wonder if those earthquakes could all be prevented by the church in worship and praise. Now, I've been here for six years. I've only felt one. I've slept through many. But the one that I felt freaked me out. I mean, it was a little roll. I saw my, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call them, telephone poles and the wires and everything began to shake. And I thought to myself, this is it. It's the big one. So you know what came out of my mouth and in my heart? Praise you, Jesus. I just love you. And, I, and the earthquake stopped. And I know it stopped because I started praising God. No, no, no. Let me explain. I wonder if just for a moment the earthquakes are simply there to remind us, church, if you stop praising, the, the very earth will cry out. And I want to just stop for just a minute to recognize the responsibility of the church 
to be like the disciples and look at their example and choose to praise God. Now, the disciples are in a good moment. Jesus, they're, they're putting their garments down. They are laying their uh, palm fronds down. You know Palm Sunday. You know the triumphal entry. And this is just like a, a great moment. They've had troubled moments. They've been on the, I mean, listen, if I was a disciple and Jesus told me to get in a boat, it would be the last thing that I would do because every time they got in a boat, they were in a storm. But now they're having this incredible day and in this moment of praise. And we need to look at their example and we need to be like them, but not just in the good moments. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, they were not praising. In fact, one of them ran away buck naked because he was so afraid. You see, it's not just in the great moments when Jesus is like the hero that we praise. It's in the moments where we don't feel like he's the hero that the church continues to praise. It's our responsibility. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says that we've been called to praise God, called to praise him. We'll take a look at verse 41. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. Now if you could just kind of go with me and have a visual. The Mount of Olives is here. He would walk down a road to about right here and he was, could be able from this spot to see the entire city before he would go down into the Kidron Valley and then go up into the Eastern Gate into the temple. Now, if you've been to Israel, you've seen this before. You have actually seen the Dome of the Rock where the temple should be. You've seen the Eastern Gate where they have all of the Muslim graves so that the Messiah can't walk on them. He, and he's gonna blow them away because he's actually gonna part the ground so he doesn't have to walk on any dead bodies. So their plan is gonna fail miserably, okay? So you would notice, you remember that there's a point as you're walking down the road that you can see into Jerusalem. Well, Jesus, he sees the entire city and something happens in his heart. And I wonder if this thing happens in our heart for our neighbor and I wonder if it happens in our heart for the people that we work with. I wonder if it happens in our heart for our family. Take a look. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Another gospel writer says that Jesus communicated, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a mother does her, as a mother hen does her chicks. Something happens in Jesus' heart when he looks at the city, he sees people. And his heart breaks. And his heart breaks because he knows there is coming destruction. He's a prophet. And in 69 AD, truly, the Romans came in and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. Leveled it to the ground. There would be nine, over 900 survivors that would flee to Masada and all of them would commit suicide except one woman and her grandchildren and they would tell the story of what they did behind the walls in, in Masada before the Romans invaded. Jesus knew what was coming. 
He knew there was certain destruction that was in the future for these people. Now, we've got to stop for just a minute. And I want you to think about your neighbor. I want you to think about the person that you work with. I want you to think about your boss. I want you to think about the waiter or the waitress at your table. I was out with a pastor the other day, and he stopped our waitress, and he said, hey, I'm a Christian, and we're going to pray for our meal. Is there anything that we can pray for you for? <gasps> I can't believe you just asked me that question. You never believe my boyfriend just broke up with me. And we're like, could, lady, could you just serve the food? No, 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 that's not what happened. She began to weep. And we, began, we had the opportunity to pray for her. We planted a seed of the gospel. Now, she didn't accept Jesus Christ as her Savior and Lord at that particular time. We left her a great tip with a smile, God bless you, at the end of our meal because we wanted the appetite of Jesus to be left in her. You see, we are surrounded by people that are doomed for certain destruction. It's called hell. By the way, I need to let you guys know something. I totally forgot, I wasn't feeling well, that Sunday was Halloween, and I spoke on the devil and hell. So we're on our way home, and Andre goes, how ironic that you, pl- that you spoke on the devil. I go, what's the big deal? So he goes, it's Halloween. And I go, it's Halloween. Everyone's going to think I did this uh, for, and I didn't. I just, anyway, so little side note for you Wednesday night double dippers. So here's the deal. Jesus is weeping over the certain destruction of the Jews, But I believe he's weeping for something even different. He knows these Jews don't believe because they didn't receive the day of his visitation. And he knows that these Jews are hell bound. Could you, with that mindset, listen to the heart of your Savior? If you'd known, even you, especially in this your day, things that make for your peace. Hell, according to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 25, was created for the devil and his angels. It was not created for people. People choose to go there because they choose to reject the peace of God. God does not choose people to go to hell. In fact, the Bible says that he's not willing. He doesn't will that anyone should perish. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. But there's a choice of every believer. And can I tell you that you're a big part of that choice? Let me give you a story. It happens in Acts chapter 10. Cornelius has a vision. And in the vision, he's told that a man by the name of Peter is going to come and communicate to him the way to God. Why didn't the angels just tell Cornelius? Because the angels don't understand the gift of salvation. We do. And so God uses you and me because we grasp the depths of our sin and the understanding of what it means to be saved that we get to be an ambassador like Peter to go into the house of Cornelius. Now you put your own name in there and communicate the gospel because your neighbor is bound for destruction. The person that you work with is bound for destruction. Do you have the same grieving heart of Jesus 
that you're willing to share, that you're willing to grieve over them so that they're not leveled, so that their children aren't wrought to the ground, so that in the day of their visitation, your opportunity to plant the seed of the gospel, they receive Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. Then he went into the temple, he began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now we're gonna stop there tonight. But Jesus, this is his second time going into the temple. If you remember the first time was all the way back in John chapter two. He picked a fight with the disciples at the beginning of his, excuse me, he picked a fight with the Pharisees at the very beginning of his ministry because he was driving them to crucify him. This was all a plan. It was a strategy of God. And now he goes back into the temple to let them know, I am here. This is your day. This is your time. My hour has come, he, tell, he told his disciples the night of, uh, 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 there in the upper room. But now he says something here that we need to hear because this is for the church. My house is a house of prayer. I firmly believe that prayer is one of the greatest things talked about in the church and the most least accomplished. You can hear sermon after sermon about prayer. You can hear everything that you want. You can, you can read books. I mean, 2,000 years of books going all the way back to the early church father in regards to prayer. But we have to ask ourselves for just a moment. How much time do I find myself in the secret place of prayer? Where it's me and it's my heavenly father. And I'm there curled up in his lap having the conversation and communication that need be. I wonder how many missed opportunities the church has experienced because of a lack of prayer. I wonder how much power the church is missing because of a lack of prayer. And prayer is not a difficult thing, and nor is it something that we have to go in our prayer closet for hours. In fact, the longest recorded prayer in the Bible, you can read it in less than five minutes. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said to say, our Father, which art in heaven. And I've heard a lot of pastors say, well, Jesus didn't want you to repeat this prayer over and over again because he didn't want vain repetitions. No, vain means, it doesn't mean that you're not repeating something. It simply means that you don't care about what you're saying. Uh, when I was growing up, I think I told you before, I prayed, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And I leaned over and I asked my mother, why do we talk about Halloween when we're talking to God? I thought hallowed was the past tense of Halloween. So I really did. Um, that prayer, now will lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep if I should die. Before. What a tragic prayer to, to teach a child. I, I had nightmares all when I was a kid. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I thought every night I was going to bed, I was gonna die. But I asked my mom one night, I was like 10 years old, I'm like, what's a nawalami? She goes, what's, what do you mean what's a nawalami? Well, we always say nawalami. I nawalami down to sleep. I don't know what a nawalami is. Now I lay me. And I, I, the next thing out of my mouth was, well, why do we have to speak like Yoda when we're talking to God? Why can't I just say I'm going to bed, God? You know? So here's the deal. A vain repetition is you don't know what you're saying. 
But every day when I wake up, the very first thing that comes out of my mouth is this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, not Chet's. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And let me tell you something. Every morning when I finish that prayer, I'm in the humble place that I need to be before the throne room of God. And I'm not praying any longer, Lord, give me this, give me this, and I want this. Let your will be done today. You see, that prayer, if Jesus said, let me teach you how to pray, why not start there every day? Father, thank you for your word. And I pray that we wouldn't just be those that praise you when we are in good times, but even in those Garden of Gethsemane moments, we would live a life of praise. Lord, give us a broken heart for the lost and help us, Lord, to love them enough to explain the truth of heaven and hell. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.